Hey, good morning, everybody. I looked this up because I didn't know if perhaps I was the only one who used to see this television program when I was a wee child, uh, but it's called Romper Room, and apparently it was syndicated and franchised, and so it showed up in a lot of places. So you may have seen this show, too. It was geared for three- to five-year-olds, and Miss Nancy, in the American version, would have this mirror. It was kind of a magic mirror, and they would do one of those little things to it, and then she would look at it, and she would say, and I see Billy, and I see Mary. Oh, and they're the Briggs. Oh, still wearing your PJs. And there is Tom and Louise. Hi, Tom and Louise. And there's Bill and Heather. Oh, David looks so cute. And she would do all that at the beginning of her show. Maybe it was at the end. She would do it during her show. And it was really something, because if you were a kid and you got your name called, it was pretty special. Well, here's the thing. Sometimes we wonder, does God really see us? Does God really know where I am and what I'm going through? And as I start thinking about preaching to a virtual audience, it's a little strange because I can't get visual feedback. And I enjoy when we're in a real building trying to see if a joke lands correctly. Because if you're really laughing, and not just behind a mask either, I mean really laughing, then I know it connected. And then I can make my point but I don't get that kind of feedback. So preaching virtually has been very odd to me. I have to hope and pray that God is somehow connecting with you. But these verses let me know that far better than Miss Nancy, God really does see you. So I imagine that there are people out there as I'm preaching to you that God is connecting with, even though I can't in a visual way. Acts 15.8 says, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them, the believers back then, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. God's Spirit guides you into truth. He promised that. Just before Jesus was crucified and then stayed in the tomb for three days and was resurrected, he was making a promise to those who were with him. He said, but when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. And he's going to re remind them of all that which he had been teaching them as well. And God also guides you through his word, which we're going to be studying today, into his will. Teach me to do your will, for you're my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground, says the psalmist. And God listens to you. I know when I've been listening to God's word, or if I've been reading a certain passage, sometimes my soul just cries out. It grabs me in a way that causes me to want to connect with God. I want to, to reach out to him. And you can be assured that if that happens to you as you're listening to this teaching, that God is going to be hearing you. He's going to hear you exactly where you are. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, says Jeremiah 29, 12 and 13. So my prayer today is that God is going to connect through his Holy Spirit and his word to show you himself more clearly and more personally so that all of us are going to be connecting. And we're going to do so as we study this passage, which is a continuation of 1 Corinthians, since we're making our way all the way through that book. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Hopefully you've got a Bible with you and you can open it to chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 12 through 20 today. Here's a general principle, and I'm starting this off 
with a story that I've shared before, so I'm gonna give you the capsulized version. It connected really strongly with me because it connects with a principle that Paul is sharing. It happened uh, 2012, I'm trying to think back. So that's eight years ago now when my mom was uh, just about to enter heaven and I was in the hospital. I'd gone to Arizona to be with her. I was out there waiting with my sister to see what the doctors would say. She had had a heart attack after two and a half years of very difficult health problems. She had told one of her nurses, I'm ready to go home. The nurse had said, oh, we're going to do everything we can to get you home. And mom said, no, no, home. And she pointed up. And the nurse was a believer and shared that with me so that I would know that it was my mom's specific request that they let her go home. She was ready. She knew the disposition of her soul. She was ready to meet her maker. And she loved Jesus and couldn't wait to be in his presence. But there was a cardiac surgeon involved who kept trying to convince us to let him do more heroic measures to keep my mom alive. And we were very clear with him that my mom did not want to be kept alive with heroic measures, especially if she was put on life support. She didn't want that at all. So we had to get mom's general practitioner, Dr. Ruben Aguilera, great man, also a believer, had to get him involved and said, Dr. A, would you please advocate for us? Would you convince the cardiac surgeon that my mom's expressed wishes are to be let go. She's ready to go. The cardiac surgeon was doing things like saying, well, I know that her fingers are turning black, but you know, she may lose a digit or two, but people do that. As though that were no big deal. Well, he was trying to make sure that all that good work he had done when he repaired mom's heart in surgery was untouched. The heart was beating and that's really all that mattered to him. But my mom knew that she was a soul who was trapped inside a body. She had the correct understanding that we are all souls and that we all have bodies. We're not bodies with a soul. We're souls that have bodies. There's a quote that has something to do with that, and I'll show you that in a minute. But Dr. Aguilera did something for us that I really appreciate. He got on the phone from the nurse's station right outside my mom's ICU room. And because the voices got louder as he was speaking to the cardiac surgeon, Everybody in the area, including some of the people inside their rooms, could hear Dr. Aguilera because there got to be a point where Dr. Aguilera was arguing his point to the cardiac surgeon. And he said, just because you can do a thing doesn't mean you should do a thing. And he said it very loudly and very forcefully. And all of us kind of looked at each other and took a big gulp. And then he said, good. Thank you. I appreciate it, do that right away. He had gotten the cardiac surgeon to sign off on my mom so that we could place her into hospice care and send her home peacefully. Well, we understand, and this is where this starts to tie together. There are about three or four different principles at work and they all intersect with one another. If you could put circles next to each other, they would be tangents. They would run into each other at different points. That happens a lot with Paul's teaching. Purpose determines priorities. This is something that we can see all through Paul's writings, not just in his letters here, but especially in the book of Romans, because he gets a lot of really good doctrinal teaching there. He's teaching us that what we believe about the purpose of our souls, which have bodies, has a profound effect on our priorities, and then those priorities affect our behavior. But we have to start with the purpose, because if you're starting with the wrong purpose, you're gonna come up with very different priorities. 
and you're going to have very unusual behavior. I think that was true in the cardiac surgeon's case. Dr. Aguilera, who knew us well enough by being with our family through some tough times, had said a little bit of a joke to kind of lighten the mood after he had taken care of that difficult phone call. He said, you want to know the difference between God and a cardiac surgeon? My sister and I said, yeah, I don't, we don't know the difference between God and a cardiac surgeon. He said, God doesn't think he's a cardiac surgeon. The cardiac surgeon thinks that he's got it. And that was his way of saying he's gotten his purposes mixed up. And the reason he had his purpose mixed up, I believe, is because he didn't have the same belief about the purpose of our soul. My mom had that correct belief. She had that biblical belief that our soul is meant to glorify God, to know him fully as he knows us fully. True intimacy, and that's where all good, real intimacy comes from, is our relationship with God. It's that vertical relationship. And that plays out horizontally if that's our starting point. So that's the purpose of our souls, to know God fully as we are fully known by him. And the thing that's amazing is he knows us fully, everything about us, even the imperfections, and yet he loves us still. That's pretty incredible. So the actual phrase, which I have actually misattributed to C.S. Lewis before, I looked it up and realized that I've misquoted C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis doesn't have that in any of his print. <laughs> Nothing that he wrote contains this quote. It actually comes from a 1960 novel, A Canticle for Leibowitz by Walter M. Miller, Jr. And the phrase is, you don't have a soul, doctor. You are a soul. You have a body temporarily. That kind of echoes some of Paul's thoughts. Dr. Aguilera and the Apostle Paul were very similar in their ideas because Dr. A would say just because you can do a thing doesn't mean you should do a thing. The Apostle Paul says all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. That's how he starts off this particular passage that we're looking at in chapter 6, starting with verse 12, in fact, of 1 Corinthians. My mom would say, I'm ready to go home. I'm ready. She was really primed. She had been looking forward to that day for over 80 years. And she knew where her soul was headed. And so that means that she would have, if she could have spoken, she would have told that cardiac surgeon, just let me go. All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. From lawsuits to immorality, that's the shift. There's kind of an abrupt shift. And as uh, Mark Elwell was pointing out the Sunday that he preached two or three weeks ago, can't remember which now, he was saying that Paul starts to deal with specific dysfunctions in the church in Corinth. And so sometimes he'll handle one specific dysfunction, something where they've really gotten off the rails. And he'll say, but now let's tackle this particular issue. And then it sounds rather abrupt, and then he'll tackle that issue. And then he moves on to the next issue. That's kind of what happens here. It's an ab abrupt shift from talking about how we believers should not sue one another in public court because it was just a tarnished witness for one thing. And they were small enough situations, these little civil disputes that we should have had plenty of guidance from the leaders in the church to be able to take care of those things so that we shouldn't have had to sue one another anyway. So that was last time. Then he makes this abrupt shift into the topic of immorality. Paul shows here how believers shouldn't misinterpret their freedom in Christ as a license to sin. So that's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to read the passage, and I'm going to read it to you 
from the NIV, the New International Version. So listen as these words pour over you from 1 Corinthians 6. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we're asking you this morning to shine a light of understanding on these words. I pray that you'll help all of us see ourselves more clearly because you are illuminating not just the word, but you're illuminating us with a white hot light that reveals cracks in our character, imperfections, things that need to be repaired. Teach us, Holy Spirit. Guide us into truth as you promised that you would. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul turns a phrase here. He says, I have the right to do anything. It's suspected, especially by the way it's worded here in this particular translation, that it was a phrase that his audience would have known about because he says, you say. I have the right to do anything, you say. But not everything is beneficial. That was his first retort. Then he says, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. He puts these two phrases together as a couplet. He's showing his mastery of literary styles because he shows us a couplet here showing that he's building on his thought process. Not everything's beneficial and I will not be mastered by anything. He's taking this a little bit deeper. And then we're going to see something beautiful at the end of this whole passage when he's going to use what's called a chiasm or a chiasmus in Greek. And it's very poetic in the way he's lined up his argument. And I'll show you a, an example of what that looks like. Well, the historic context for Paul, as he starts speaking to these early believers in the first century in Corinth, they've come from the Mosaic law. Most of these people were Jews before becoming believers. There were some Gentiles in that church, but many of those people had Jewish backgrounds. So they would have come knowing the Mosaic law, and they would have been very legalistic about many of those things, as we have studied in many of the Old Testament passages that we've looked at in the Bible. So for them to have this new freedom in Christ might have felt very free to them, and they might have been misunderstanding that freedom and misdefining it, defining it inappropriately, misappropriating freedom and turning it into license. That got me to thinking about this time of year about many students 
who move away from home for the very first time in their first year of college. We can see that. I've seen it time and time again as we meet different students. I like to talk to them after the first semester that they are there and say, how are things going? What things have you learned? I also looked up a couple of studies that were done when they actually asked anecdotally, what have you learned in this first year away from college or your first semester? Well, here's some of the things that some of the students would be honest about when they said, well, this is some stuff that I'm, I was already good at, but these are things I wish I'd been taught before I moved away from home. Things that they wish they had learned prior to college include emotional strength. They said, I gained a lot of emotional strength from my immediate family, and I didn't realize how important my immediate family was to me. I was homesick, and I was lonely. I moved away even though I was only a few miles away. I was living in this dorm. I didn't know anybody. I was trying to make friends with my new roommate, and we didn't get along all that great sometimes. I wish I had some more emotional strength. How do you develop that? Well, sometimes you have to slog your way through and figure it out. But some families do a better job of preparing people for emotional strength when they move away than others. How to prioritize. This is something that comes up often. I sure wish that I would have had some sort of a class in high school about how to prioritize. How do you determine which is the most important thing I should tackle? It's not just time management, it's prioritization management. And then how to stay motivated. Because I found that there were some things that just drained my motivational batteries. You know what the two main motivational drains are? Procrastination, which is inner escapism. Those little things in your mind that say, Ugh, I can't deal with this right now. I feel so drained right now. I need some sort of an escape. And so you flip over and start playing that video game. And suddenly, the little pleasure centers of your brain are going, woohoo! I feel better, I feel better, even though there's some kind of a, a struggle going on internally because you know that you're not doing that thing that you should be probably working on. So that's a drain of motivation, inner escapism, procrastination. And then there's outward escapism, interruptions. And sometimes you'd be studying real hard for that test and somebody would come down the hall and knock on the door and say, hey, we're going to go play ping pong in the student center. You want to come? You go, oh man, you just saved my day. I didn't want to study for this thing right now anyway. And off you are playing ping pong or doing whatever it is that they've asked you to go do. Four hours later, you come back to your room and you realize, oh, I still haven't finished studying for that test. It drains your battery of motivation. Those are things that kind of need to be addressed, especially your first year away. And there's an awful lot of students, an awful lot of them, who don't make it through their first year because they couldn't handle some of this kind of stuff. Priority management, I think, is a much more useful term than time management, as a matter of fact, because you can fill your time with all kinds of busy activities. I got really good at that. My first year away from home in college, man, if I started trying to act like I was doing busy work, I could make my bed. Never did that at home, but I do it in my dorm room because it gave me something to do. I would clean the popcorn popper a couple of times. It was so shiny. You could eat off it. Well, I guess you had to eat off of it. You could eat off that popcorn popper. I could be so busy doing all this stuff that wasn't doing what I should be doing. So I was busy filling up time, but it wasn't the priority. So how do we get to that priority? What's your purpose? 
it comes back to the purpose. Paul's reminding these people too, these people who might have come into a newfound freedom, moving away from the Mosaic law, kind of like a new college student, moving away from home and all those demands and that voice in their head that says, don't forget you have to do this. Don't forget to finish your homework. Don't forget to take out the trash. Don't forget to do your laundry because you've been wearing those jeans five days in a row and they stand them up in a corner all by themselves. <laughs> We don't have those voices, and so we have to figure out how to make this happen. That's kind of what Paul is doing. Israel, in a sense, is like that new student. New students, new believers, they need reminders of purpose. Corinthian believers started to mistake freedom for license, which led to sin, which took them away from their purpose, which was to know God and to be known by him, which led to a sense of failure and shame, and it resulted in a tarnished witness. Do you see the downward spiral? It was terrible because the more you start to feel ashamed, the less you want to connect and you want to hide yourself. Just like in the Garden of Eden, the original sin, we want to hide ourselves away from God, even though he sees everything anyway. Three principles in this passage. I'm going to look at all three of them here. The first is, not all things build up. Paul makes that clear right off the bat. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about that. We're going to get to that in a few weeks. He's talking about how the gifts that God gives us are for the common good. They're for building other people up. They're not just for us. So when Paul's saying that not all things build up, he's not saying just building you up personally. The world doesn't revolve around you. I know this is a shock, but it's true. Not all things build up those people around us that we're supposed to be building up through the gifts that God gives us. And then also, another one of Paul's writings, Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not all things build up, and Paul understood that. Uh, I noticed that David Darrow was signed in with us today from Scotland. Great to have you with us, David. Thank you. I'm glad that I'm using this illustration. I didn't know you'd be here today, so it's got to be a divine appointment. I was with David, and we ate breakfast together. Thanks for that breakfast. This was last year. And, uh, Joy and I were on our sabbatical. He took me for a full breakfast, and a full Scottish breakfast looks like this. Now, I'm going to tie this into this full Scottish breakfast, and it really does have something to do with the New Testament, I promise. 1 Corinthians 8, which we haven't gotten to yet, Paul is giving a cultural example for him, talking about idle meat. Now, that's I-D-O-L, so it's not just meat that's sitting there doing nothing. That would be I-D-L-E. This is I-D-O-L, which was meat that had been offered to a pagan god. He says, some people are offended if you're going to use that meat for a meal, because somehow they figured that it was spiritually tainted. And Paul says, eh, we know, it's just meat. It's the meaning behind it that makes somebody turn it into a pagan offering or not. We, all, we understand that's just a good hamburger waiting to be eaten. But if it's going to offend somebody, if it's going to tarnish your witness or ruin a bridge that's been built so that you can point them in the direction to Christ, or if you're going to cause somebody to stumble, then forego the stake today. Just do without it for a while. He's saying you need to use discernment, however, and think more of others than of yourselves and so just be cautious about what you're doing and think through that rather than just only feeding your own appetites without worrying about what other people think about it or feel about it. So our UK experience, when David and I were sitting uh, in front of this amazing meal and they put it down in front of us and I looked down at it and I thought, well, if that's a full meal, I should have asked for about a third meal because that's about, I think that's about all I got through was maybe a third of it, possibly a half. I'm not sure. But there's something on that plate there that it's called black pudding. Some of you already know where this is 
talking about. It's a real great cuisine over there in the UK, apparently. It's made from blood mixed with meal and some spices, and it's cooked. And I got to tell you, mine was pretty tasty. I had some of it, and it wasn't bad. And because I know some of the New Testament passages that I'm going to point you to, I don't believe that I was violating Scripture by doing that as well. I wouldn't recommend having it every day for breakfast, but I'm glad to have said I've had that. Oh, and I ate some haggis too, and I enjoyed that as well. But the Bible speaks about food. Leviticus 17, 10 through 12, some of that Old Testament legalistic, strongly worded things about what was forbidden, what you should not eat, included the eating of things with blood. Why is that? Because in Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. So these people who may have come out of that might have been really offended by eating certain types of meat if there was still some blood in it. There would have been some other things that would have caused them to say, why, why are these new believers eating all this stuff that the Old Testament said was completely wrong? Have they completely lost their minds? Do they just want to paint the picture of everything is completely fine? That's total license. They might not have been able to understand that, which is why Paul said, use discernment. So somebody with a New Testament response, which I appreciate, which allowed me to eat black pudding, nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them, for it doesn't go into the heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. It's just eliminated. In saying this, parenthetical note by the writer of this gospel, Mark, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, for some of you who might be an Enneagram number one, those perfectionists out there, Here's an interesting further Sunday afternoon discussion and for extra credit points. You can look up the passage in Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28, where Jesus says, take, drink, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, ah, for the forgiveness of sins. Very interesting tangential passage that you could look at. We don't have time for that today, but I would love to be in a fly on the wall and hear some of your discussions at lunch. So here's some principles of Christian liberty that are growing out of what we're starting to gather from Paul's teaching to us, not just in 1 Corinthians, but some of these other uh, tangent passages where he's reiterating some of these principles. Number one, we do have freedom in Christ for sure, but we shouldn't flaunt that freedom. Freedom is not for us to be able to say, ha ha, I've got freedom. We shouldn't exclude fellowship over issues of liberty as well. There's some of these issues that say they may be non-essential issues. It doesn't have to do with your salvation. So some may come down on this side of that issue. Others may come down on that other side. There are kind of some gray areas. And this is the tough part about living a life of faith in relationship with God. God may actually lead you to do something slightly differently than he leads me to do. And you think, how can that be? Some of us who really like to see things lined up and we want to check all of our boxes, that's tough for us to understand. And yet, Paul starts to tell us about that with his principle related to the meat offered to idols. Sometimes the Holy Spirit may teach you to do one thing and say, no, you really need to go down this road here. And there's good reason for that. And other times he may completely forbid it and say, eh, stop, don't go there. But we shouldn't exclude fellowship over issues of liberty. Also, we shouldn't create a stumbling block for somebody. If we think that it may really offend somebody or taint our witness to them, just don't do it. Just pull, pull back from it and say, I don't have to do this so badly 
that I'm going to really miss something terrible. So I'm just not going to do that for a while because this is more important. And we should put others above self. That's the positively worded overarching umbrella concept for all of these four. We should just think more highly of others than we think of ourselves. Contemporary example, some dairy farmers in New England uh, over on the northeastern coast area of uh, the United States thought that there was something that they really needed to capture the essence of because people loved pork rolls where they were from. So these dairy farmers and some other people came together and they made ham flavored ice cream. Mm -mm -mm. Boy, howdy. Ham flavored ice cream. Now, if I were going to choose an ice cream, I probably wouldn't choose ham flavored ice cream. However, just for the sake of argument here, let's say that you love ham flavored ice cream and you're witnessing to a friend who has come out of the Jewish background very strongly Jewish traditions, and they observed all of the festivals and all the things related to the Sabbath, Shabbat, and you were trying to connect with that person in a way to show them your freedom in Christ. Would it be a right thing for you to show that freedom by saying, I'm going to chow down on a quart of ham-flavored ice cream, but I'm going to let you get something different? Or would it be a very compassionate thing for you to do to say, even though I love ham-flavored ice cream, I'm just going to get plain vanilla today, and I'm just going to try to continue to build this friendship. As Paul would say, it's really the Holy Spirit leading you. Maybe your friend would tell you, I don't care if you eat the other, that's fine. You're not under the same law that I'm under, so go ahead. If you feel like it, go for it. Well, maybe that would give you some freedom. I think probably I would have asked those farmers if uh, there was something wrong with them to make ham-flavored ice cream, but I wouldn't want to offend anybody. That's just the way it goes. But that's one of the things that Paul's trying to get us to think about. Think critically about how our actions are going to affect other people. Principle number two in these three principles in this passage. Some things become our master. They master us. Paul says that all things may be lawful for him, but he will not be mastered by any of them. So what's an apt modern word for being mastered today? How about this one? Addiction. I think that's very appropriate. Anything that becomes an addiction is something that really grabs a hold of us, and we feel like, I can't break free from this. It has mastered me. And Paul is really trying to get to this with them because they were starting to have certain behaviors that were becoming certainly immoral. And it's never right to break one of God's laws to try to fulfill one of God's purposes. Uh, for those of you who are in Growth Encounter earlier today, Mark brought that out very clearly. They were doing some crazy things in Judges in the Old Testament where people would do some amazingly, you'd think, how could they possibly think this was going to be okay? We're going to steal this and build an idol so that we could please God. None of that made sense. Well, Paul says the same thing to this group in Corinth. Some of the things that you're doing don't make sense. They're immoral. God won't approve of that, and yet they were so addicted to it. I think that brings something else to light that we need to look at for a moment. The power of our thought life is so powerful and so important. Proverbs 4.23 says, be careful how you think. Your life is shaped by your thoughts. Paul knew that. That's why he could talk about needing to be transformed or conformed into the image of, of Christ through the transforming of our minds. Romans 7.23, but there's another power within me, he says, that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. 
that sin will master us. He's talking about that old nature, the sin nature that's true for all of us, even as believers. We're still going to have those tugs of war within our spirits as something wants to become our master, and we have to somehow fight against that. The importance of thought life. When we give ourselves over to something, whatever that thing is, we can become mastered by it. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Paul said that in Romans 6.16. Well, the third principle in the three principles that we're finding here in 1 Corinthians 6, some things are temporary. We have to unpack this next verse just a little bit. Paul says, you say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and yet God will destroy them both. Now, when we're saying God will destroy them both, Paul's really not talking about judgment here. I think a couple of translations catch this a little bit more appropriately. He's talking about the fact that both food and the stomachs are going to be done away with upon physical death. They're going to die. There's going to be no need for food when a person dies. So this phrase that was familiar to them, to the Greeks, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, they were really talking about the purpose of that stomach. And then they would extrapolate that slogan and make it much broader in context. So they would use that phrase, but they would mean all kinds of license for themselves. They would think the food is designed for the stomach and the stomach is designed to receive food. So, hey, eat, drink, and be merry. Let's just feed those appetites. Why shouldn't we? That's what they're designed for. But they would also take that to mean sexual desires and every other kind of appetite. Whatever kind of lust would feed that immediate gratification, let's go for it. That was what the Greeks meant by that phrase. So Paul is starting to push back on that phrase and show how that phrase should not apply to the license that becomes sinful and immoral. He makes his point stronger by using this chiasm that I mentioned, in Greek chiasmus. It, it's a series of parallel phrases to heighten contrasts or opposites. In a simple phrase, if you want to boil it down to something that, as an example, in American literature, you might say something like, you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. They're the same phrase, but reversed to show the opposites. And that's exactly what Paul does. And he does it so poetically. So let me show you this uh, chart that I've made for us here to look at. Now, if you're listening right now through the audio version, if you're signed in just by your phone, uh, this will be put up through YouTube later. And I would urge you to look at it because it's a beautiful thing. And it shows the beauty of this literary style, which was known all the way back in Hebrew. Uh, in fact, Mark Elwell pointed that out just a couple of weeks ago about, about a chiasm that uh, was in the book of Judges, I believe. Same was true with the Greeks. He would use this to show how some things can converge in the middle of this mirror image of phrases, and they would come back out the other side. And you can see the different colors, how they sort of go with each other. The very first phrase, 13b, the body is for the Lord, matches up with verse 20b, glorify God with your body, therefore. And then the blue one, Verse 14, God has resurrected Jesus and will resurrect our bodies. That connects with verse 19b through 28. Your body belongs to God, so you were bought with Christ's body. He spent himself for you. And then verse 15a corresponds with verse 19a. Our bodies are members of Christ, therefore your body is God's temple. You see how they all just match up together? It's beautiful. 15b Unite bodies with somebody, not your spouse, or in his case, prostitute. 
Mark pointed this out too, that in the Old Testament, there were some things uh, related to fertility rites and temple prostitution it was still going on in Corinth. Temple of Aphrodite, these things would happen right there. And Paul's saying, no, 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 don't bring in paganism to your worship practices. That's gross. And it's immoral. Unite your body with somebody who's not your spouse, any kind of immorality. God forbid that. No. That would also connect then with verse 18 in that mirror image of this chiasm. Therefore, flee sexual immorality. And then also verse 16 and 17, when these parallel phrases would come together right in the middle. When two unite, they become one flesh. And he even gives a quote to that. And then verse 17, when you unite with the Lord, you become one in spirit. So there he, he's starting to separate. You see that where he's starting to separate between physical being united and spiritually being united. So we see this gorgeous poetic chiasm that Paul is showing us so that we can understand that when we're spiritually united with God, we're united with him. We have become one with him. Why would we want to take him with us into these situations where then we're going to do something that's immoral? It brings shame on him as well as to ourselves. We sin against our own bodies and we sin against God. And Paul makes that abundantly clear through this chiasm. Here's some primary points from this passage from Paul. There's a lot of good P words there. <laughs> Who or what owns you? What has become your master? To whom or to what are you giving yourself so that they would become that master? And then is that master helping you fulfill your purpose or is it taking you away from your real purpose? And I guess the real question that would be surrounding all of that is, do you know your purpose? Let's make this personal. Francis Chan is a pastor and an author. He's the author of Crazy Love. And I found this uh, little known YouTube video where he was speaking to a youth uh, conference. And he gives this memorable, really memorable illustration. Now, if you're listening on audio only and you can't see the, uh, the video that's going along with that, I'll explain. I don't want to give a spoiler alert. So I'll explain after you've heard that. I think there'd be enough context for you to figure out what's going on there. But let's watch Francis Chan in this memorable illustration as we're thinking of ourselves being united spiritually with God and then some things that would happen with us that would be immoral. Okay, here he goes. Let's say I say to Adam, I go, Adam, I love you. And then, and I say, oh man, I didn't mean to do that. I'm sorry, oh, but it felt good. I can't, and then to go, you know, I can't control myself. You know, this is great, you know, and just to go, you know, I can't help it. There's a genetic disposition, you know, and, uh, and just to go, you know, oh man, this is, this is awful, but you know, it hurts me more than it hurts you. And then to go, look, I know that we already have a relationship. <laughs> no, just to say, we have a relationship, and I know you'll forgive me. I, I know you're going to forgive me for doing this. And then, okay, you can sit down. Thanks. Okay. And then, thank you. Wow, you guys clap for that? That's really weird. But then to walk away from that and go, oh, man, my hand hurts. I feel terrible. Gosh, the consequences of slapping so much is, is that my hand hurts now, and then I feel bad about myself. Hey, I shouldn't have slapped him, and, and you just kind of leave it at that. And it's like, what about him? Now, clearly, he even said that. If you caught that, I know that the volume was very low. It, it played great this morning when I tried that. Sorry if it was too low. 
basically Francis is slapping this other guy and saying, I can't help myself. I'm sorry. And then he even says at one point, I have a genetic predisposition. I can't help it. And he keeps slapping this friend and he says, I feel terrible when I'm doing that, but I can't help myself. He keeps doing that. And then he says, the consequence, which also was pretty uh, self-focused was, oh, my hand hurts. I feel so bad. I feel so guilty. But then he comes out with the big thing. What about him? What about the guy that was being slapped? And this is where I think Paul is trying to get us to understand. What about God? If we're doing something that's immoral, if we're sinning, bringing something immoral into our own life and dragging God in with it because we're connected to him, what about him? How does he feel? Wouldn't it be like a slap to God's face for us to unite ourselves immorally with somebody else, somebody who's not our spouse? Because Paul clearly had in mind the true definition of marriage, which was one man with one woman for life. That was clearly what he had in mind, and he teaches that elsewhere. But we understand that this immorality, which for them had more to do with prostitution and probably temple prostitution because of paganism, but we can extrapolate that a little broader into our own context and say any kind of immorality on our part. If it's not sex within the boundaries of marriage to the spouse that God had for you, then it's immoral. The Bible uses the term fornication. Maybe we would talk about some things that today would be a big deal, which is pornography. That's really huge today. It's a huge challenge for so many. But we would think, well, what about God? If our purpose is to know God fully and to be known by him as he knows us fully, how does he feel when we're engaging in immoral behavior? Regardless of how guilty we feel, what does that make God feel like? Tangible reminder. I wanted to bring this up because I, I mention this sometimes when I'm doing weddings. We have a wedding coming up just next week, in fact. The wedding ring is a symbol. It's an outward symbol of an inward commitment because my purpose in marriage is to know somebody and be fully known. Guess where we get the example of that from? Ah, the Trinity. And we have this wonderful example through God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ. And they have these different roles. They're co-equal but there's submission in roles. There are all these wonderful things that are passed down to us in marriage. And then marriage itself becomes a wonderful picture because of Jesus, who's talking about the bride of Christ. We've talked about this a lot. If you've been through our covenants series or through the book of Matthew, all of which are available on YouTube. But anyway, the, the outward symbol, this wedding ring, doesn't make me married, but it's a reminder of the commitment that I've made. Because if love is a verb, then I'm going to be doing things to show my wife that I'm really committed to her. I'll give you a real logical and practical example. Let's say that I'm cruising around on the internet looking for scriptural illustrations, like I found that one from Francis Chan, and an ad pops up. And it's got a really nice looking young lady as a part of the person who's the spokesperson for that ad. And who knows where that ad might take me? Is it a real ad? Is it clickbait? I don't know. It'd be real easy to hover over that and think, I'm curious. But you know what I do? The finger goes right over. My right hand goes right over to my left hand, and I start touching that wedding ring. Because there's a physical, practical reminder that I have pledged my fidelity to one person who knows me better than anybody. She knows me really well. And she still loves me, which is pretty incredible. And if I'm going to do that, then I need a tangible reminder. I've seen some people who would literally put sticky notes and they would write out by hand different Bible verses to talk about their purpose to know God 
and to be known by him. They would find great things like search my heart, O God, or who can ascend the hill of the Lord, those who have a clean heart, clean hands. Anything that would help remind them that they are supposed to be connected with God as their purpose, and they would paste it right on their computer. So that if they were tempted in any way to go where they shouldn't be going with that little finger of theirs, they would look right over there and see a tangible reminder of what their real purpose is because the purpose drives our priorities, which drives our behavior. You see how all this kind of comes down into something really practical? From Paul's teaching to the Corinthian church all the way back 2,000 years ago to today with a new student in the dorm room where there's not a parent looking over his shoulder, it's all the same. And it still happens, and it can be true for you today, that God can remind you that he loves you, he sees you, and he forgives you when you've blown it. If you have blown it, if you've messed up, you'll confess that sin. He's faithful to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Thank goodness for 1 John 1, 9 and God's forgiveness. But we need something obvious. I, I had one person actually suggest to me at one point that we actually need a little bobblehead Jesus. I know this is really awful. And it's probably terribly uh, inappropriate. But they were making the point that if there was a bobblehead of Jesus, kind of like the kind you can put on your dashboard that, you know, goes up and down like that, they actually make things like that, unfortunately, probably blasphemous. But according to Francis Chan's illustration about slapping his friend and saying, but I know you'll forgive me because we have this relationship and I know you've continually forgiven me, so, but I can't help myself. Every time you're tempted to go a place where you shouldn't go and look at things that you shouldn't be looking at, you just slap that bobblehead to remind you that that's what you would be doing to God. And I think, okay, I understand your point, but I'm not gonna go out and purchase the bobblehead, okay? I think I'm gonna stick with the sticky note uh, and put that on my computer. Probably a little bit better to do that. Summary of this passage, let's look at the summary. Not all things build up. So we should prioritize our lives based on things that build up others. That makes sense. What are your priorities? Well, are they building others up? That should be included as one of your priorities. Some things master us, so we should give ourselves to a master that will fulfill our purpose rather than draining our motivation to fulfill that purpose. That helps us with our priorities. And then some things are temporary, like stomachs and food. So spend your life on things that will last for eternity. We should invest ourselves in those things that are going to go on forever. And a good question to ask, as I mentioned last week, is this going to matter 100 years from now? If not, maybe that's temporary, and we can slide that a little bit farther down on our priority list. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I appreciate so much the fact that your inspired word constantly reaches right into my heart. And I know that you do that because you do it constantly through your Holy Spirit. I thank you that Paul, who was speaking to real people about real issues, also understood that. And he could become pretty blunt sometimes in telling them about how they should prioritize based on their purpose. And I pray that all of us would start to have a better sense of our priorities including even our practical priorities throughout the week, based on our ultimate purpose, which is to know you as you know us better than we know ourselves. I pray that we'll think very diligently about that relationship and that we'll think about how you must feel when we slide into behavior, when we're really not thinking about you, we're only thinking about ourselves, 
and about a substitute, about escapism, about something that could really affect our witness in a negative way. I pray that you'll bring something to mind, something tangible and practical that will remind us that we're connected to you spiritually. And because of that, we have become one and we don't want to destroy that fidelity that we have with you. Thank you for helping us to understand your word and showing us how practical it is for everyday life. These things I pray in Jesus' name. 